0: Welcome to episode 302 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was published on Monday, 18th of July, 2022.
1: The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Turn Bicycles. The good people at Turn are committed to building bikes that are useful enough to ride every day and dependable enough to carry the people you love. In other words, they make the kind of bikes that they want to ride. Turn has e-bikes for every type of rider, whether you're commuting, taking your kids to school, or even carrying another adult. Visit www.turnbicycles.com. That's T-E-R-N bicycles.com to learn more. Pain, sleep deprivation,
0: hallucinations. Why do ultra distance cyclists do it. I'm Carlton Reid and on this episode of The Spokesman, I talk to three ultra cyclists, including my son, Josh. He's preparing for the Transcontinental, a 2,500 mile unsupported race across Europe from the cobbles of Flanders to the shores of the Black Sea. I talked with Josh, along with Ruth Sutherland. Both of them were first timers on last month's 620 mile All Points North race in Northern England. But I start with the conversation I had with Indian lawyer Kabir Rachuri, who recently came third in the solo men's category at the race across America, making Kabir the first Asian to podium at RAM. Well done on on um, your achievement uh, at the Race Across America, RAM, um, this isn't, it wasn't your first attempt, was it? This was, it was your second
2: ride? This was my second. This was my second. So the, the, the obvious question has got to be, why? Uh, yeah, because I was not satisfied with my 2019 attempt because I knew I can do better. I was uh, trained uh, properly To do it in good timing. But you know there are always uh, mistakes when you do it for the first time. And you learn from those mistakes. So uh, the first thing that I was not satisfied with my own performance. And uh, uh, the same day when I finished the RAM. I told officials that I'm gonna come next year. But uh, the next year was COVID. Then thereafter the things were a bit uh, dicey. So uh, we went for 2022 attempt.
0: And tell me, how, how long did it take? I mean, I've, I've got it here written how long it's taken you, but tell tell the listeners how long it took you to, to ride across. Uh,
2: so it took uh, 11 days, 22 hours, 43 minutes. Uh, and the cutoff time is exactly 12 days. So one hour, one, one hour 15 minutes uh, before the cutoff time.
0: So my my question before was was when I, when I said why it wasn't so much why did you come back and do it again a second time although that was that was a good answer it was why do these events anyway so why we, why are you a long distance endurance cyclist why are you doing the, why are you pushing yourself like this
2: uh, maybe this is kind of a addiction uh, when we uh, get a chance to test our own limits that how much we can push as a human body, okay? Uh, Normally we are not going to uh, stay awake uh, for entire day and do cycling without any event. So these events are platform for us to test our own limits. It's like uh, someone is doing F1 race to test their speeds, test their equipment, test their science behind all the machines and all. So it is platform for our endurance cyclists to test ourselves uh, and to try to do uh, better, and always try to unlock ourselves when we do it for the next time.
0: Now, there, there are many ways of doing race across America. So you, you can do it in a pair, you can do it in a yeah. team, you, you take it in turns, and somebody sleeps. How were you doing it?
2: Um, I was doing in solo, so uh, I was riding solo. So. Uh, yeah, I feel the solo attempt is the most difficult one because the clock is still ticking when you are uh, you are taking a sleep break or you're taking some short break or something like that. So uh, in pair, uh, somebody is on the bike when some uh, other rider is taking some break. But in solo attempts, your clock is not going to stop for you.
0: And And, and tell me your sleep strategy because 11 days... I mean, how much sleep were you getting and, and, and what, were you, what were you getting?
2: So last, in my last attempt, I was suffering with a uh, lot of sleep deprivation issues, a uh, lot of hallucinations. Uh, so this year, my uh, main motto uh, was to take ample sleep from day one. So I used to sleep after every 24 hours of riding for uh, around two hours. And thereafter, I used to ride for like 24 to 23 to maximum 27 hours uh, until I feel tired and until I feel sleepy. So that was the strategy to ride 24 hours and to sleep for two hours. And
0: how, tell me the, the, the navigation, because in many ultra endurance events, you, you can choose your route. But I'm presuming in, in the race across America, you're not choosing your route, you're you're following a route.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, we get the proper route book before the uh, race. It is like two months prior the race. Uh, We get GPX files. That is also a beautiful task uh, for this race because your team has to be uh, super accurate with the navigation. Okay, you miss a turn and you go off route for like entire 15-20 kilometers maybe and you lose time. So, the route is planned, route is fixed and we have to follow that exact route. Mm. And then Uh, maybe we get some detours uh, in between if there is flood or they get some construction going or they get some uh, forest fire or Mm. something like that. So we get detours. But uh, yeah, it is pretty uh, planned. Mm.
0: So uh, whereabouts are you in India right now?
2: so i am from mumbai
0: and and basically you you ride do you do like events in india so you're, you're doing long distance events there too how, how are you how are you training for this
2: so yeah you mostly i do indoor training because traffic in india not that cycling friendly okay so i can't do vo2 max sessions or maybe sweet spot sessions uh on, on the road because that becomes uh, difficult or maybe dangerous. So I do most of the training indoors and we do attempt a lot of uh, endurance races uh, down here because uh, the crew needs that uh, touch. Uh, I need that pressure of racing and uh, uh, we need that practice sessions. So we do attempt a lot of races here. And
0: that, that's... that's i'm kind of like sitting here thinking that's amazing so you're doing an awful lot of the training for this indoors on a static bike
2: yeah that's yeah yeah so 95 percent of the training that's is amazing indoor.
0: uh i mean previous you know paris Bay riders have you know have, have famously you know just come into the race and i've just done indoor training but it what you're doing is is endurance so uh, how, how long are you spending on a bike indoors for training for this
2: so usually uh, i train for 10 to 12 hours a week uh, one of uh, out of that one ride is endurance ride like four hours or maybe three hours on weekends and uh, the rest of the sessions are pretty uh, uh, planned like some of them are sweet spot sessions some of them are hill repeat, some of them are uh, vo2 max uh, maybe twice a month I go outdoors to keep my bike reflexes, uh, alive. I go downhill, uh, pra- I do downhill practice. I go some climbing practice. So that is how I do it.
0: That is so amazing like doing quite so much indoors. So it's quite a a shock to be, <laughs> to be riding outdoors for so long.
2: Uh, yeah. So I have done, uh, 24 hour time trial also, indoors, in which I covered around 762 kilometers and I was off the bike for around 8 minutes out of 24 hours So yeah, I do like to ride indoors because there is always some entertainment uh, in front of me like I can watch Netflix, I can watch some motivational series or maybe some movie I can regulate the temperature so uh, body is less fatigued because i do train in ac so yeah that that becomes easy to recover for the next session when i do indoor mm. training
0: now i've interviewed mark beaumont um, who who he's told me about um, he's using glucose monitoring to, to yeah, so this is normally di- diabetes control normally, but now athletes are using glucose monitoring. So I, I believe you're using glucose monitoring in the in the same way that Mark is using yeah, it. So do. for performance,
2: yeah, of course. So um, we have seen a lot of athletes like uh, 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 it's uh, Ian fredeno or maybe a lot of triathletes who use glucose monitors to uh, uh, get some gain in their performance so i use it to keep my glucose levels in proper uh, numbers so that i can perform well i can recover well and 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 i'm I, and i take care that i'm not training when i'm not uh, uh, fueled myself well okay so i use it to perform better and uh, to recover properly overnight. So that is that has become a super important uh, gadget for my uh, training. So yeah, have been using it from last seven months, I guess.
0: And so you didn't use it in your first attempt, but you have used it in this attempt. So what, what, what are the dif- differences that it is? Because you're using ultra human, yes?
2: Yeah, yeah, I'm using Ultraman. So uh, on my first attempt, I was like a raw rider. I didn't pay attention on these uh, micro gains, like uh, to be aerodynamic or to uh, 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 to pay attention on your recovery. So on this attempt, I was pretty much technical about these things. So I used it in this attempt. And uh, I can say uh, that I was... Very much, uh, I had a very strong finish. Uh, maybe uh, I was the 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 one of the rider who was very f- looking very fresh mm-hmm. at the finish line even after riding 5,000 kilometers. That was because I was fueling myself properly. Uh, I never under fueled myself. We were. Keeping tab on our uh, glucose level. When I was on higher range, we used to take uh, off for an hour. I used to concentrate on my hydration. So that was a big difference compared to 2019.
0: So you're saying we there. So you, you obviously have a support team, and they're helping you with the navigation, and that they're helping you with the the glucose monitoring. Are they are they like are they looking at your statistics as you're riding along?
2: Yeah, exactly. So that uh, sensor is connected via Bluetooth on the mobile. So somebody from the uh, follow vehicle, so there is always 24-7 a uh, follow vehicle which follows me to keep me secure. And we are always connected with the uh, uh, Bluetooth system. So there used to be someone who used to check my glucose levels every hour to see how my body is uh, doing with the nutrition. And they used to do all micro corrections when, uh, according to the heat, according to the cold weather. Uh, so yeah.
0: So in in my, my wife's a diabetes specialist. She's a hospital um, paediatrician, so I, I actually quite know quite a bit about diabetes just from picking it up okay. from her. So so an awful lot of the the, the modern ways of of uh, monitoring and and coping with diabetes is. There there are pumps on your body that that feed you the insulin when you need it. So the the equipment that you're talking about here doesn't do that. It just monitors how much you need. And then you've got to physically put in the right amount of food. Is that right?
2: Exactly. So how it works is there is a small carbon needle which goes into your uh, skin. uh, And it gives you real-time glucose levels. Okay, so you have to train uh, with it. Uh, you have to know your accurate levels. if I feel strong in 120 to 140 mgdL uh, that that is not uh, same with some other person okay you have to know your own graph okay sometimes uh, I feel that I, I am pretty I am riding strong when I am my glucose is above 120. So I used to keep, my glucose levels above 120 uh, when I'm riding in the RAM. Okay, so we have to train with it and we have to know our body, and thereafter, we can do all these changes.
0: Mm. And you, do you find that you're using this in your everyday life as well, or is this purely performance? Uh,
2: no, actually, I use it in my everyday life because as an athlete. And when you're planning to do RAM and all, you have to be fit 24-7. So Mm. I used to uh, uh, have it 24-7. I used to monitor my glucose level because I always do gym, uh, yoga, uh, even I'm working as a lawyer. So uh, I have to pay attention to these glucose levels. So yeah, 24-7 I used to use it.
0: So you mentioned that you're you're a lawyer there. So it's an an advocate um, in India. So so I'm assuming your training has got to fit in with, I presume is a very, very busy job. And your training has got to be quality, not always quantity. Would that be
2: right? Exactly. So a lot of people have... Uh, Understanding that uh, if you want to do RAM, you have to uh, train for like 25 hours a week or maybe 30 Mm -hmm. hours a week. But uh, I always felt that uh, it is always quality what matters, not the quantity. Because when you train more, you have to pay attention on your recovery. And if you don't recover well, then you're going to damage your body. So I used to pay attention on my quality of the training. Mm. so there's hope for all of us we could all do ram just actually, by riding an hour a week actually because uh, i i just think that you have to do some long races some good mm-hmm. experience with it and at the end of the day ram is all about your mental strength and mm-hmm. how you cope up with your sleep uh, and how do you train because uh, if you have good ftp if you have good experience with the ultra day events then your body knows how to survive with it
0: because it's got to be you're right about the mental stuff and this is this is what i'm imagining is physical is one thing but it's it's i'm just thinking of, of these hugely long roads in in the midwest where they go on forever they're very straight and it must be incredibly boring so how do you how do you get past the 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 stretches of america that are incredibly boring long long never-ending stretches
2: so i just wanted to share a very uh, good incident what i encountered this time so arizona was pretty hot in 2019 so the temperature was about 55 degrees centigrade and uh, this year i was mentally prepared for it but uh, this time arizona was pretty pleasant like it went till 41 degrees celsius maximum and i knew in a long race like ram uh, nothing is going to be permanent so if i am getting a favorable condition at the start there is something will go wrong on later part or maybe in mid part and uh, we finally got uh, super strong crosswinds in kansas and those patches are pretty straight if it's a crosswind then it's gonna be a crosswind for like 400 kilometers or maybe 200 mm-hmm. kilometers and the crosswind was so strong i was not able to ride um, beyond uh, 17 18 kmph on a flat route that is gradually mm-hmm. down actually so uh, uh, so mentally i was prepared that it is going to happen and it is all about hanging there. So I, I knew that this is not even, this is again not uh, like permanent. Okay, it is going to be changed. The terrain will change and all. But you have to train your mind accordingly that this is just going to be a phase and it is going to pass. So yeah, this all is about uh, keeping your head strong uh, and pushing uh, till the finish line.
0: And hallucinations? You had no hallucinations this time compared to yeah, your first this attempt? time,
2: exactly. This time I didn't have any hallucinations. I was sleeping well. The mm. fueling was proper. I was hydrating properly. Uh, I took proper sleep. Um, um, and uh, last. Uh, time's attempt in 2019, I literally forgot how to cycle in last 200 kilometers Because you develop your mental fatigue And my coup used to tell me that you have to pedal down and pedal up You have to keep your balance So it goes to that extent uh, uh, And what you will do when you forget how to cycle in a bicycle race So that was pretty uh, awkward and uh, uh, luckily, I got my senses back when it was just 70 kilometers from the finish line. And uh, I did my best average for that last 70 kilometer patch.
0: Mm. And tell me, because the, the, when there's long stretches of, of nothing in Arizona, that, that 55 degree heat is like, it sounds incredible, but there's, there's no real huge worries about other vehicles and, and anybody running you off the road. But when you're coming through um, um, cities and and you, and so, so beginning and the end, I guess, um, you, you, you're then having to go through 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 traffic. So so how are you coping with that?
2: There are a few states who are not cycle friendly, um, I think, and uh, rest of the states are pretty uh, helpful. I, I, I experienced a lot of uh, uh, vehicles were riding uh, driving behind me and they were uh, driving for like 10, 10 minutes to get a, sick, a safe pass. Okay, so mm. uh, luckily I get friendly people around me uh, who are not that. Uh, the only trouble what we face is riding through the city in a daytime, you have to encounter a lot of traffic signals. So that breaks your momentum because you have to stop and you have to start again. And it is not something a training ride when your body is super fresh. It is like you are riding from last 10 days. You are feeling sleepy. You don't want to uh, get out of your bike because uh, your body will go go into rest mode. So that is the most uh, irritating part what I feel that, uh, uh, encountering a lot of graphic signals.
0: Mm, no, I, I can imagine. <laughs> and it's huge contrast as well. Cause if you, if you've come from Arizona and you've come through Kansas, where there's just these long roads and then you've suddenly got quite busy stuff. So you're, you're seeing literally the whole of America in, in one trip. So it must be a culture shock. And for anybody, not, not the fact that you're coming from India, but anybody would find that to be quite a, a big culture shock.
2: Exactly. So I was even reading about the USA and uh, uh, any uh, U.S. citizen um, visits uh, 11 state, states in his entire life, average mm-hmm. 11 states, and we cross 13 states when we do Ram. So we actually cross more states than any mm-hmm. uh, US citizen. So that is huge. And cul- as you said that the culture, of course that uh, you can say it like uh, you enter Arizona, that is entirely looks empty. Like there are no homes for like 100, 100 kilometers. Everything is isolated. Uh, then you goes to Utah. Uh, that is pretty beautiful it has some historical values then we enter into colorados that is pretty cold i i mm. climbed wolf creek pass in rain full-time rain so it was pretty um, enjoyable for me uh, uh, because riding in cold weather i always enjoyed because i can push my body to some extent uh and uh, i don't develop that fatigue so i was enjoying that and again uh, we enter into Kansas and all so everything changes like the landscape the people uh, so yeah
0: so tell me what are your plans what are your next events and are you going to be doing ram again
2: uh of course i'm going to do ram again in 2024 i am planning to do it Uh, Mm -hmm. because this time I uh, so want to win it and uh, I can see that that is possible after doing for two times I know uh, my negative points where I can improve where team can improve uh, and I have a lot of time and in 2023 I am planning to do race around Austria because uh, that is a very good race uh, uh, if we see uh, uh at uh, its climbing uh, uh, graph so i so want to do the race around austria in 2023 and then ram in 24
0: thanks to kabir Raturi there and now before i introduce ruth sutherland and my son josh here's my co-host david with a message from our sponsor
1: Hey everyone, this is David from The Fredcast and The Spokesman, and I'm here once again to tell you about our amazing sponsor, Turn Bicycles, at www.turnbicycles.com. T-E-R-N-bicycles.com. Turn are committed to building bikes that are useful enough to ride every day and dependable enough to carry the people you love. Speaking of being able to ride every day, as a spokesman listener— I'm going to bet that you are the go-to consultant for your friends who want to ride but aren't enthusiasts and need some advice on what to buy. In that case, you may have people in your life for whom you just haven't been able to recommend just the right bike, considering their stature, age, mobility issues, or just plain hesitance to get back on a bike. Finally, those family members and friends can experience a new bike day with the all-new TURN NBD. Get it? New Bike Day, NBD. Okay, the NBD has been specifically designed to be confidently easy to handle and easy to ride, even, well, even for those folks who might be, as Josh Hahn, team captain of TURN Bicycles says, are smaller in size and have a hard time finding a bike that fits. Or older riders who might not have ridden a bike in a while, or riders who might have balance or physical issues or riders who are just intimidated by the sheer size and weight of the average e-bike as josh goes on to say the nbd will be refreshingly easy to hop aboard and ride now how can josh be so confident in that well it's simple the nbd has the lowest longest step through opening of any premium e-bike so, if you know someone with a knee or a hip injury or, or somebody who just can't lift their leg over the top tube of a regular bike, this alone could make all the difference. Plus, the NBD is designed with an ultra-low center of gravity and a longer wheelbase. And what does that mean? Well, it means that it makes it easy to balance and handle. And with a lowered bottom bracket… And motor, the NBD is stable for all riders. It particularly inspires confidence for shorter cyclists because they can easily get their feet on the ground when they come to a stop. But the NBD isn't just for shorter riders, as a matter of fact, it adjusts in seconds, without tools by the way, to fit riders from 4 foot 10 to 6 foot 3 or 147 to 190 centimeters. The NBD is also super comfortable with its upright riding position, swept handlebars, suspension seat post, and wide 20-inch balloon tires. Need to load the NBD into a car? No problem. It folds flat in seconds. How about getting it into a smaller living space? No sweat. The NBD includes TURN's vertical parking features. You can roll the bike into a small elevator and park it in a corner of your apartment. Now, with a max gross vehicle weight of 140 kilos, that's 308 pounds, the NBD can easily carry an extra passenger and plenty of cargo, with up to 27 kilos on the rear rack and up to 20 kilos on the front rack. And in fact, it works with a wide range of turn accessories and with most child seats. As I've said before, and this is important to me, really important, safety is a core value at turn. And that's why the NBD frame and fork have been rigorously tested by one of Europe's leading bike test labs. That's also why TURN chooses to use the Bosch motor and battery system. It's one of the few systems on the market that meets and passes the UL standard for battery and electronics safety. Read the news and you know how important that is. Now, the NBD comes in two models with prices starting at $3,899 or €3,999, Euros, and bikes are going to start arriving in stores in Q1 of 2023. For more information about the NBD or any of TURN's wide range of bikes, just head on over to TURNBicycles.com. Again, T E R N Bicycles.com. We thank TURN for their sponsorship of the Spokesman Podcast, and we thank you for your support of TURN. Once again, thanks for allowing me this brief introduction, everybody. And now let's get back to Carlton and the Spokesman. Thanks, David. And now over to Ruth Sutherland
0: and Josh Reed.
3: Okay, would it, would it be possible to kind of have just a little three-way warm-up chat? Um, so, because you, you might know a bit about me, but I... Don't know anything at all about you, Josh, apart from the fact that you're a civil engineer, but not for much longer. And you like riding your bike. Yeah. Uh, just just so, so, so that we can feel comfortable with chatting instead of going in cold. Would that be OK? Yeah, yeah
0: of course. Yeah, well, let's let's let, let, let's let's go for that. We can we can do that for uh, everybody here, Ruth. So. So, Josh, tell us about yourself then. Well, I've, I've ridden my bike
4: all my, all my life pretty much. Like as soon as I could walk, I was, I was put on a bike by my dad. <laughs> um and then we've been on loads of cycling holidays as kids and um started racing did a lot of racing when i was um a kid
0: what kind of racing up, did you
4: do did a lot of um road racing and um as i was moving through the youth and then the junior ranks yeah um did some of the national series and then after my a levels i didn't know what i wanted to do so i um I left the country and I went on a working holiday visa in Canada for two years. Uh, planted trees in the summer and was a ski instructor in the winter, and that allowed me to like with the tree planting anyway. The ski instructing didn't make any money, but the, no. the tree planting allowed me to save a bit of money, so I was able to travel afterwards. Um, did a bit of bike touring, and then went on a on a big trip from with some friends around Southeast Asia. And but my plan was to cycle home so I took everything with me that I needed to to ride a bike um back from Asia with me so I had all my panniers all my cycling kit all my tools just everything on my back so I was like a turtle um
3: did you take spare tires
4: uh not spare tires but um um pretty much everything else I'd need and then
0: what sort of bike at this point you'd you'd never bike at this point did you Josh
4: no I didn't didn't know where I was getting it from um (laughs) then like I was going to think in Cambodia, but, um, the, the brands out there don't really take products off the product line all the time. They're not their, like more batches. So I got in contact with giant and they, um, helped me out massively and went to their factory in Shanghai and cycled home from Shanghai. over wow.
0: once. And then you've got a very, very uh, popular video of that trip. Haven't you? A YouTube video.
4: Yeah, it's doing doing very well. It's um over two million now. Wow. Um, so yeah, and then want to try and make that a thing and do more trips and see if I can um, fund myself by by going on these
0: trips. So Ruth, same same questions to you then. Um, pub chat. Uh, who are you? What do you do? And and how did you get into cycling? I'm just searching for Josh's video. Um... <laughs>
3: so i'm i'm at the opposite end of my of my career i suppose josh because i um i've got four grown up children who will be your sort of age who mm-hmm. started to do exactly the sort of things you were doing and going across the world having adventures that hadn't really been an option for me when i was their age and so i became quite envious and uh, my husband took early retirement and it seemed a bit silly for me to be going out to work every day while he was at home. Uh, and we both wanted to ride our bikes. So I took a gap year late in my life. Mm-hmm. And that was the start of, um, a- of a long period of riding bikes. Um, we... We went off travelling, we, we did we, we hadn't been riding bikes. We have always I've always ridden a bike, a bit like you, I kind of grew up with a bike, but I never did any competitive cycling or any sort of really serious cycling. And I just had uh you know a, a functional bike. I never really a bike was a bike to me in the in the old days. Uh and now I have a, a shed full of bikes for, for every purpose as, as you probably identify with. Um my husband's always been very competitive and he got into cyclocross racing. And after a couple of seasons pitting for him, I thought, well, I'm here every weekend. I might as well ride. I might as well race myself. I might as well do this. And it wasn't really for me about racing. It was just about having a a workout, having a bit of fun, having a ride of my bike instead of hanging around all day. Um, But then I sort of got the bug and started you know, seriously being interested in, in the race, because I was in the veteran women's category. So I, I found as I moved into a new age category, I was actually quite competitive in my in my category. So cyclocross kind of was something I did for a couple of years before lockdown. But I wouldn't say that it was a love of mine. And, and I'm not really a competitive person in the same way you sound to be josh i am more sort of interested in competing with myself or challenging myself um I, I was never any good at sport when i was at school and i used to always be the last one to be picked for teams and i was really slow runner and uh, so I, i've always had this sort of perception of myself as not really being an athlete um and and these things these things live with you Anyway, uh, we we joined the gap year, went off to um, New Zealand and we cycled uh, an event called the TA, which starts at the north tip of New Zealand and goes down to the southern south tip of New Zealand. It's a brevet. Mm -hmm. And we it was the first time we'd really done any serious bike packing um, with some borrowed and some bought equipment. It was very much a a sort of try it out and, and work out how it works. And that was so enjoyable and so successful that uh, we came back to the UK, and I decided to take another gap year, or just to extend my gap year. And to cut a long story short, I've never actually been back to full time paid work since then. <laughs> I've, I've just cycling has taken over my life. So I became a, I became a cycling coach. We both started doing some ride leading for British Cycling in the days when they had Sky rides and then leps rides, and we joined a cycling club and we i became um we both became mountain bike leaders and to to take people out sort of on more wilderness trips and um we took part in quite a lot of organized bike holidays and bike trips we went to chile we went to nepal um and then we went back to new zealand and we did another long brevet which was an inaugural event from east to west cape of the north island and uh, then then it came oh, oh we we ended up in tasmania just before lockdown we went there for a race a mountain bike race a three-day race called the dragon race and as we landed we were told the race was cancelled and there was a, a global pandemic and we'd mm. kind of been in the in the back of beyond and had not really been aware of the world news at that point and uh, that was the start of the of the covid pandemic so we we eventually made our way back to the uk and um during lockdown, we got involved with local cycling. We set up a community cycling group. We opened a pop up bike shed. My husband's a, a, a good mechanic, and we've been sort of cycling from home with our local immediate community ever since then.
1: So um, you're
0: one, both you're both living the dream, but are. from different different ages. So you, you're kind of like you you're, you're going to meet in the middle at some point. But you're, you're, you're both living the dream.
3: Yeah, precisely.
0: <laughs> of, of, of basically, and the dream there—I'll better clarify that—is lots and lots of cycling because you're clearly both doing tons and tons of cycling.
3: Yeah, indeed. Yeah. That's the plan. So
0: that that kind of brings me into, and the reason why we're talking today, apart from that, sounds fascinating. That uh, all that that background—I didn't know that. Um, but because you're you're a rookie in uh, a, a race that both of you did, so. So all points North. So Josh, tell me what all points North is.
4: Uh, it's a ultra distance bike packing race. Um, we all start in Sheffield and there's 10 checkpoints you need to get to all over the North of England. Um, and you've got them all on a, on a Brevet card and then you, you go to all these checkpoints, take a timestamp photo and then make your way back to Sheffield. And this is the first, first one back wins. Or Well, it's not always a race, but um, that's pretty much the, the gist of the, the event. So how long did it take, basically? Uh, it took me 70 hours, I believe. With and you're 50. not sleeping much? I slept for um, an hour in total, um, two half an hour naps. Mm. But then ride had... time was about 56 hours, so it's, it's crazy how much time you you stop and don't realise you're stopping.
0: And I'm going to ask you your route in a second, but I'll go back to Ruth first. So Ruth, how, how long did it take you? And did you have that same amount of sleep deprivation or were you a bit more sensible?
3: Well, I, I, for me, it was sleep deprivation, but uh, compared with Josh, it was, it was a lot more sensible. Um, I, I'd worked on the principle that I would need about five or six hours off every 24 hours. For me, it was, a, it was a case of entering the All Points North, being on the start line, and then getting to the finish line. Mm. And it was going to take me as long as it took me. I, I had no illusions that I was racing or, or anything. For me, it was just a personal challenge to, to get to all the points um, in the shortest possible time and to, and to make it over the finishing line. So I suppose I set off with a slightly different ambition to Josh. Um, I was, I would think I, I was back in about 102 hours. Um, so substantially longer, you know, like, like a whole day longer than Josh, um,
0: but i'm guessing um, here that the fact you finished means you're still way up ahead of of how many people actually started because an enormous amount of people i'm guessing here just don't finish these events
3: yes to, to there, were, there were i think there were 29 rookies rookie riders are the people who've never done an event like this before and uh, we applied for a sort of special dispensation there were 30 places available to people who were given an 8 hour start a head start um, our our time was still measured in real time so my my 102 hours started 8 hours before Josh's 52 hours i think that's how it worked um but, but i got an 8 hour head start essentially and of those people that started with me uh two of us were were vying for the finish and we came back within about 4 minutes of each other but the other mm-hmm. rider beat me into fifth place so i was the sixth finisher in the rookies and Brilliant. i was very
0: happy about that I bet yeah Uh, so Josh tell me about your route and why you chose that route and then Ruth I'm going to ask you exactly the same question and let's see where you differ here just in in not in time but in routes
4: um well at the start line a lot of people were um thinking about going um towards the Lake District first to get all the hills out of the way and I was thinking of going that way and then I looked at the weather forecast and it was tipping down with rain, so I I changed my route last minute and went um out to the east coast first, uh, up to Hornsey Mare, Mere, and um headed up to towards Bamburgh Castle. And I didn't have a, a drop of rain until the last two hours in the race, and mm. a lot of people dropped out with hypothermia from going the wrong way. I think. So yeah. So that, that I'm was very a choice glad. you
0: made, and you're you're happy with that choice, yeah? Oh
4: yeah, very very happy. Um, even though the climbing was very back-ended it meant that I I wasn't like suffering from hypothermia or
0: struggling with a lot of rain. I just can't imagine doing those because they're massive massive hills in the Lake District doing that after 60 hours. I'd rather be dry.
3: (laughs) Josh I think that's really interesting and I think you know as a rookie i have been writing up my experience and it's just a whole series of rookie errors Mm -hmm. and i think possibly my first rookie error was choosing to go round the the course the opposite way to you so i went Mm -hmm. clockwise i headed off into the yorkshire dales into the storm Mm -hmm. and didn't pay the price, I suppose, because I was actually able to find somewhere to sleep. Um, I carried Bivy gear and I didn't use it on the whole race, but it was a huge comfort to me as I was sort of pedalling into the unknown and not having any idea where I was going to finish each day. It was a huge comfort to know that I I did have a very good billy setup that I could use if I needed to. Um, However, the rain was a a huge problem and the wind was unfortunate because I had a very very strong headwind as I went from west to east across the the northern hills. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think... I had no flexibility on that start line because my route was was rehearsed and embedded and imprinted in my mind and, and yeah. mm. it had never crossed my mind to veer from that. And it made me quite agitated at the start when I heard other riders talking about, oh, well, I might just tweak my route. I might just... I was thinking, how can you possibly... You know, it, I, it's taking all my energy and emotion to hold myself together, knowing the route I'm going to do. The thought of changing that at the 11th hour was was just, you know, unthinkable.
0: Would like- you change... Sorry, sorry. Would you change that then in a, in a in a any future race? You would you'd be more flexible, or do you think you would always want to have that route in your head?
3: No, mm-hmm. I would definitely be more flexible. I, I, I mm. you learn a whole lot of lessons when you do an event like this. And I've I was looking at Josh's route, and the the it, it doesn't it isn't clear from the um, the map um, on the on the website which way round Josh went, and I haven't looked at his splits, but I imagined that he'd gone the same way as me because he did the checkpoints in almost the exact same order but in reverse so mm-hmm. you know i'd be interested josh did you did you plan and rehearse that route had you had you were you wedded to it before you set off
4: uh not completely but then this, this has been my first um ultra distance um bike back and race as well um yep. so i'd never done one before i'd done a lot of bike touring and a lot of racing and i thought it was just like a happy medium between the two. Yeah. And then I'd um, booked on to the transcontinental like three years ago um, yeah. before all the lockdowns, but it's been cancelled three years on the trot. So I thought I needed to do something like All Points North or an yeah. event like this prior yeah. to the transcontinental. So I make all the mistakes in this one. And then yeah. I've I'm, I'm got more of an idea for the transcontinental, which is my main goal for the season.
3: Yeah.
0: And um, what mistakes did you make, Josh? Well, we'll describe what the transcontinental is in a second, but what mistakes did you make that uh, you would change? I would look at my
4: route a lot more like I looked at it the first bit was was okay but then the back end of it like I basically just picked the shortest route possible and what I didn't realize is Halifax has some incredibly steep 30% climbs and instead of just going on the on the on the main road and relatively um flat I'd chosen the shortest route which happened to go up every 30 percent climbing in Halifax and with 600 miles in the legs, that kind of kills you um but then there's this climbs in the lake district where you're gonna you have to go over anyway like rhinos and mm. no matter when whether you do that first or last it's always going to be a grind and it's always going to hurt so I didn't really think that was a didn't really matter when I did it it's it's always going to hurt what
0: about equipment choice uh, because gloves would have helped wouldn't they big gel gloves so tell tell us about that
4: so like even like two weeks later my hands are still um vibrating a little bit from not wearing any gloves and just uh the vibrations from the road um and some of the shortcuts I took on that that route were a bit um sketchy so I'd, I'd go on like bridle ways and um Trying to cut off little sections of road and shortcuts weren't always shortcuts. Having to mm. ford through rivers and stuff. Mm. So yeah, definitely a lot more route planning is needed for future events.
0: So, Ruth, same same question to you, and especially about equipment. Would you would you change equipment in future rides?
3: The only elements of my equipment that was worrying and and unsettling was um, a rim mounted dynamo that I had been given as a present and I had used it on training rides and was confident with how it functioned and that uh, I knew you know I, I knew what to do with it but my mistake was that I hadn't really used it in anger I hadn't got to the point where all of my power, packs were empty and all of my devices had lost charge and I needed to get power from my Dynamo as my only option and when I got to that point part way around the ride in a really remote place I discovered that the Dynamo had significant limitations in its ability to, or my ability to to pedal Mm. uh, to make it generate power because it only generates power above a certain speed and it needs mm. a certain distance at that speed to activate the the internal so generator so at a certain speed i had to go two or three kilometers before anything happened and then as soon as i hit a hill and my speed reduced i lost that power and i also lost the internal sort of generator power and so on hilly terrain my dynamo really did not work to do what i needed it to do it did work on long flat sections laterally in the ride but at the time that i needed it it was a real crisis and so I had uh, basically my my message here is to myself is that I I needed to have pre-tested my equipment better. Mm. Uh, but in terms of the equipment I carried, um, personal equipment, I was really well equipped. I had some really good lightweight kit. I used every single thing that I took, with the exception of my bivvy bag or my bivvy gear, which stayed. P- packed in the bottom of my um rear carrier bag for the entire trip but I wouldn't have gone without it and I was going to say to you Josh what did you carry did did you did if you intended not to sleep did you take anything for um for an emergency or were you just relying on the foil blanket that they issued on the start line
4: um well I definitely on the start line I was second guessing myself and thinking do I take my bivvy do I take my sleeping bag um because that, just looking at other people's bikes, you kind of second guess yourself. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I did take my bivvy and took a sleeping bag, and I am very glad for it. it was had a, a thirty out uh, thirty minute kip in a in a bus stop and a thirty minute kip hmm. on a on a park bench. Um, so I rode through the the first night, the whole way through, and then the second and the third night had half an hour kip in each one. And it, it like yeah. it, without those sleeps, I would have been struggling on the downhills just to stay upright. Really, I needed needed to. Get my head down for just those half an hour, and it helps massively.
0: Yeah, and you set an alarm on your watch or something, or your I did, your but you not go... say
4: wake me up in half an hour. I did, but I tended to wake up before the alarm. You just got so much adrenaline pumping through you and thinking, "I <laughs> oh, I need to keep on riding," um, mm-hmm. that you you just wake up anyway.
3: I've heard other people say that, Josh, about the transcontinental and another um, really long races that. Actually, you become able to just lie down in mm-hmm. a ditch and take a power nap for thirty minutes, and then get back on your bike. And yeah. I found, that even though I was I was sleeping for two hours, um, m- maybe once I slept for three hours, um, but I always set an alarm, and I always woke up before my alarm, and I was back on my hmm. bike before you know before I'd planned to be back on it. So it, it is it, it's amazing what your body can do, and it's amazing how how that sleep wake pattern.
4: Yeah. I feel like it's very, very different in a race situation scenario way. You think you need to keep on going. Yeah. But like, but before, before I did this event and thinking of the transcontinental hearing, like you have three, four hours of sleep a night, I was like, wow, that's, that's not very much. And then doing this and only having half an hour um, in the second and the third nights, then it's like open my eyes. And it's like, oh, it's, this is, this is okay. This is, this is doable.
0: Mm. Okay, let's go back. To, sorry, go back to lights, Josh, because Ruth was talking there about having um, dynamo. Yeah. So you didn't go down that route. I know you've thought about that route, but did, tell me about the, the power options you have. Um, well, I'm, I'm using exposure
4: lights, um, so that they last a long, long time. So my rear lasts forty hours, and then the front lasts for thirty six. And then I've got a, a battery pack for the front as well. Um, an exposure one and i didn't like with that short amount of race you're not going to be riding for long enough that those would run out so i just think by using a dynamo and it costing you um some of your power it's just it's not worth it and then for stuff like the transcontinental i think you're going to be going in hotels and being able to charge so i just think i've gone for the the no dynamo
0: option And that's same for your electronics. You're charging from a a, a removable power pack.
4: Yeah. So yeah, I just
0: got two power packs
4: and charging my phone and, um, the bike computer with, with those. Hmm.
0: So tell me now, right, Josh, about the trans we've mentioned this a few times. What is the transcontinental? Where does it start? Where does it finish? How long will it take?
4: Um, so it starts in Belgium up the, um, up the mirror, which is a famous climb in, in the tour of Flanders. Uh, then it, it wiggles its way um all the way to to bulgaria um on the black sea coast through like four checkpoints i think uh 2500 miles Uh should take 10 days to 2 weeks but um we'll see um got that in a month's time
0: mm, that's july Yes, yeah, so, so it'll be very what, hot in europe it will be with uh, the heat waves and stuff. Ruth, what have you got planned next? Have you got any more? Now that you've done this and you've, you've, you're the rookie rider, finishing in a really good place there. Um, what's your what's your 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 next p- potential event?
3: Well, when I got off my bike, the first thing my husband said to me was, "I hope you're not going to acquire a taste for these events."
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And my reply was, "I." I'm doubting whether I'm ever going to get on a bike again, let alone do another event. Um, But that was, that was two weeks ago now. And it's funny, isn't it? How, how your point of view changes. And I kind of feel it's it's my time because I'm not getting any younger and I'm not going to I, you know I have I I can't put these things off and think oh I might I might do that in 5 years time because I might be in a bath chair in 5 years time so I think I probably have to start thinking about what I might do next but I haven't actually started about that. I'm still, I'm a little bit like you, Josh. I did wear gloves and I too have got uh, really numb fingertips, particularly on my right hand. And I I still feel I'm feeling the effects. And I think that's possibly to do with being a bit older and probably to do with having been less fit than you to start with. Uh, But yeah, my my, my legs have stopped aching and my body's sort of coming round. But uh, I feel that the, the four days took a real toll on my on me physically uh so I've not thought about what's next um I I don't know have you got any suggestions Josh
4: uh not sure I'm pretty there's a lot of a lot of events like coming out that um some interesting ones but I've not really thought about anything after the transcontinental I've just been so focused on that for the last three years basically
3: did Um, you read did you read Ian Walker's Endless Perfect Circles no, he describes the transcontinental race. It's an extremely good read. I really strongly recommend it, and that was um, that was one of the things that inspired me to do the All Points North.
0: Mm-hmm. Ian Ian's been on the show. He's a he's a he's a good friend uh, of the show, and he's a he's a fabulous athlete as well again another person who just sleeps for half an hour in a bus stop yes and uh and then gets back back on his uh bike
3: and in his book he describes the the um the process of of becoming uh, of refining his technique of going from being a a a rookie himself being a beginner and and making all the mistakes and learning from them and doing it differently next time so he describes a series of different races and it's very very readable and yeah, mm. I'd love to meet him.
1: Mm.
0: Yes, Ian's a, is a is a nice guy, um, and a fabulous athlete, and a great psychologist as well, of course. Um, so uh, you, you don't know exactly what you're going to be doing next, uh, Ruth, but you, you, you haven't dragged your husband into to doing one of these events. He's 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 definitely not going to. It's by the sound of it, he's not going to join you.
3: He's he's fond of his sleep. and the thought we've in the past done um we've done 24 hour races together like the the mountain mayhem and he's Mm. hated every every lap that he's had to drag himself out of bed to ride in the middle of the night still ridden really well but uh i think i think uh i think it's unlikely that i'll persuade him
0: Mm. who knows yeah see i've done the mountain mayhem yeah and I've done the 24-hour events, and, and my logic there, and this is what I told Josh at, 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 when he was doing uh, this event that you, you, you've both done, is just finish. That's got to be y- your goal, just finish, because when you're doing a, a long-distance event, and I, I found this with the 24-hour the mountain bike events, is if you finish, you basically place, mm. because how many people just overcook? you know, they, they, you you can see this, the adrenaline kicks in, you go faster, you, you try and keep up with people. And it's like, but you're not really racing against other people in many respects. You are just trying to just finish Mm. the event. And that, that to me was always the goal. And I always found that I actually came up relatively high in the rankings, just because so many people just overcooked themselves. So that must be an incredible temptation you must but the question to both of you you must have to really bring back your competitive spirit because you can't be chasing after people who for instance in in a 24-hour mountain bike event it could be a team four mm. so it could be one person who's actually relatively fresh and it's not a solo rider so you mustn't go chasing after people is what i'm trying to say is that something that you physically have to stop yourself doing ruth and then i ask Josh the same question
3: um it is But the All Points North is quite a lonely event because, I don't know about you, Josh, but I didn't really encounter many other riders. And although I was very keen to be dot watching to see what was going on in the overall event and around me, I became very anxious about the amount of power that I had left. So I spent a lot of time with my devices all switched off because I wanted to preserve what power I had! So I wasn't really able to watch what other people were doing. The times that I was aware, the, the only time really that I was aware that I was neck and neck with someone was as I was coming into the finish for the last for the last sort of five hours. There was somebody who had been riding overnight and was closing in on me, a much younger, faster seeming rider, and I, that did really spur me on because I think I would have I think I would have been like a snail otherwise getting back from mere It's the most mm. tedious straight section of of riding that you could possibly imagine and my legs were were finished and i was very hungry i was exhausted i fell off my bike at Hornsey mere just turning round an 180 degree turn from the control i just literally fell off and i couldn't unclip and i just burst into tears and thought i'm never going to finish this race Mm -hmm. Uh, and then it was the the knowledge that someone was was close that made me think get up get back on your bike you can do it you can do it and so yes that it, it is a motivating thing
0: and Josh, what about you? Were you were you dot watching? Were you looking at other people? When when you met them on the course, maybe you met them more than, than Ruth, did, did you go faster? Did, or did, are you always thinking, no, I've got to stay with my own limits, forget other people?
4: Oh, no, I'm very bad at um, getting egged on by other people. Like, the, the first, mm. like, bit was so much fun. It was like an alley cat race. The first little bit, like people weaving in and out of um, different routes. You'd be riding on a road and then someone else will swing onto your road and be egged on by them to to carry to try and chase them down um but yeah it was, it was so much fun that that first little bit and then yeah you just gotta get your head down and i would, I would be watching the
0: dots and seeing where people other people were but uh yeah would you, would you then go faster to to try and catch up or would that demotivate you what what was the dot watching doing to your head Oh it was definitely motivating to start with and then through the night you'd see
4: red lights in the distance and you'd chase after those um yeah that really helped and then then I started getting punctures on my on my rear tire and I couldn't couldn't seal it with the the sealant so I had to um put a, put a tube in in my rear tire but be, because I couldn't because it was there the tubeless I couldn't get the um the valve out of my um wheel so I had to Luckily, a, a kind guy and a recumbent came past and um, lent me some tools to to um, I, take I, it off. But then you, I rang. You, you,
0: dis- you disqualified yourself, basically. Yeah, yeah I because rang the you're not, allowed to, you're not allowed to get help?
4: No. So I rang the organizers and told them what had happened, basically disqualifying myself. Uh, but I still wanted to finish the race and see what time I could get. Um, mm. Because it, it's all preparation for the transcontinental, really.
0: Mm. And let's let's talk about food because um you mentioned ian walker before and in the conversation i had with him he he's said on on his his long distance rides he's done the one from norway as well uh he just went into and this is, it turns out a lot of riders would do this. they would go into the service stations and buy these crappy crappy uh croissants filled with with gloop and he said he would never eat this normally but they're incredibly calorific and he would just eat you know loads of them and, and, and sicken himself by these 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 horrible horrible garage um, um croissants are there any food options because obviously josh well not obviously but josh you're vegan so you're kind of like giving yourself an extra uh a bit of a, a, a hill to climb there just on your food choices so what did you eat how did you eat and would you change anything? And I'll, I'll ask Ruth the same question in a second. Well, I
4: set off with a lot of food. Um, so I had my pocket stuffed. I had like three bananas, two blocks of marzipan, a couple of sorins, um gels, and these uh, banana leaf wrapped um, energy products from Colombia called uh, Luchos Dilutos, I think. And yeah, so you just open them, just pack full of sugar, and then you chuck the banana leaf because it's biodegradable. Um, and then that lasted me pretty much through the, the first two days, really. Well, the, the night and then the whole, um, first day and then got to Carlisle basically and stopped at my first place to stock up and got a, a McDonald's, which I wouldn't usually get, a uh, the vegan, new vegan burger and then packed myself with four vegan sausage rolls and just <laughs> just kept on kept on going but yeah i carried a lot of food start with probably weighed myself down quite a bit i only really need to stop to
0: to get water and what do you think your food choices through the, the 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 ride were the the right ones you did okay on food or did you did you run out of energy um i never ran out of energy
4: i was i was eating constantly i knew i knew i had to keep on eating and i also like before the event started, I had a lot, I must've had like 500 grams of pasta. So off off the start line, I, I felt really sick, like almost as if I was going to throw up for the first like four, four or five hours, partly because of nerves. But I think in the long run, it, it did me really well. Because even though I was digesting for those first five hours, uh, like it made the blood sugar and kept my energy going the whole way through.
0: And Ruth, what was your, what was your food strategy?
3: Um, I think I've had a lot of experience of feeding myself on, uh, long distance and endurance events. And I feel that that's something that I'm very, very comfortable with. And I know what works for me and I don't like eating junk and I don't like eating, uh, sugars and gels. So I try and get my nutrients from, uh, natural products. I, I also set off with bananas and two substantial granary cheese and tomato sandwiches, one for eating that day and one potentially for eating through the night or for breakfast the next day. And I'd eyeballed where and at what times of day I would be able to stop to mm-hmm. pick up food. Um, and it worked pretty well. I did have one desperate moment where i hate to admit this because i'd never been in before but i went into a burger king which was the only thing that was open and what i suppose i really craved was was a bag of chips just something salty and something hot and Mm. and and comforting and filling but i made the mistake of buying what i thought was a an aberdeen angus steak (laughs) in a bun and i think it was it was some terrible it was some terrible thing. I had to. I was so guilty and and so ashamed of myself. I had to WhatsApp my family and uh, confess. <laughs> um, and that was a mistake because that didn't go down well or stay down very well. But the rest of my food, I, I managed to have. I managed to have um, s- some hot soup somewhere. I managed to have uh, some decent. Pick up some decent sandwiches en route. I didn't ever go into a supermarket. I didn't want to leave my bike. Um, so, I just mm. literally picked up what I could. I had a, a good feast at a station cafe in Oxen home. I, I think uh, from, for me the, the, the eating and the feeding uh, went well i didn't carry unlike you josh i didn 't go out laden I, I didn't carry an excess of food and I did have I did have my obligatory emergency rations stuffed down with my biffy gear, and i didn't break into those. So I always knew that if the worst came to the worst, I had enough calories there to to keep me going for a few more hours
0: and what are you riding ruth what's what's the bike that you're riding the type and the brand
3: <laughs> um it's a specialized ruby which is uh, i think it's a women's specific version of the rube it's a beautiful uh, lightweight road bike with some suspension in the in the front stem and in the
0: seat post because josh you were running a gravel bike so so so, Ruth, let's. Why, why are you riding a road bike? Do you have a gravel bike? Do, do, you, do, do most people do you think road? What were people riding when, when you were starting on the start line?
3: I think there was a there was a complete mixture, Josh. Would you agree with that? There was there was a really a really wide range of different bikes. I was surprised.
4: Yeah, there was people on really fast road bikes, and then people on more of a, a touring setup.
3: And I saw one woman riding on a mountain bike.
4: Oh, wow so, that would have been tough
3: yes it would have been tough so i put i put um tougher tires and and um higher volume tires on my road bike the largest that would be mm. accommodated by the by the the fork um th- i have got two cyclocross bikes i haven't got a gravel bike um And my cyclocross bikes are not as comfortable to ride Mm. as this bike. I I was really happy, and I also had tri bars, and that Mm. was one of the things that I don't know whether I would do again. I didn't really use them in anger until the very last day when I had that very long straight stretch. You can't benefit, I don't think, very much from resting on tri-bars when you're in very hilly terrain and it does it puts maybe 1.2 kilos on the the weight of the bike i think so it's it's always a bit of a trade-off isn't it
0: so josh what are you riding and you were riding with tri-bars so describe how how much you use them i i use them quite a lot um
4: i try and get into them as much as possible more to just change the position and get the weight off the hands than anything um yeah yeah i'm running a, a giant revolt uh, gravel bike was just the same, not the same bike, but the same type of bike that I rode back from China. And I've, I've had great experiences with it, never really had any issues. Um, and then I, but I took the gravel tires off and put some Hutchinson Sector um, road tires on. So just 30 mil, um, so still pretty wide, but um, smooth to lower the rolling resistance. And then running Arkle. Arkle bags and, um, yeah, so I had a seat packer on, frame bag, uh, and then a, a top tube bag, but that was pretty much it and stuffed a, a Rauben's, um, Bivy in there, a mountain bivy, with a sleeping bag. And then, yeah, tri-bars with the exposure light and giant, uh, computer, stages, computer, um, mounted to the top onto the tri-bars using a, um, I think it's 77, um, 70 projects um like 3D printed um thing that goes onto the tri bars and you're able to fit the exposure mm. light and the computer onto onto one thing.
0: Oh that's interesting. Re- re- really neat. Thanks to Kabir Rachire, Josh Reed and Ruth Sutherland for joining me and thanks to you for listening to episode 302 of the Spokesman Cycling podcast. Show notes and more can be found on the hyphen spokesman The next episode is a chat with American urbanists Sarah Stoddard and Zoe Kirkus. Meanwhile, get out there and ride.